0: Morning everyone. It's great to be here with you and to continue our series in Thessalonians. We're in Thessalonians 2 now and we're looking at the whole series of faith under fire. Interestingly, Steve picked up on it uh, this week about the, um, about the news, how the news makes him depressed at the moment. And someone else mentioned that to me this morning as well. You don't have to watch much of the news to realise that there's a lot of trouble around the world. And uh, just because we don't see so much on street corners these days, or in the films, people there with billboards saying, the end of the world is nigh, that uh, actually that fascination or fear has gone away. Actually, if you just think, think about news items over the last few years, and many Things about the end of the world will come to your mind, whether it be global warming causing the end of life on Earth, whether it be war or some man made disaster causing the end of life on Earth, a scientific experiment at a quantum level causing a black hole to occur, the implosion of everything was one thing I remember reading a few years back. Another one is with a fusion reaction causing a chain reaction with the explosion of everything on Earth, whether it be artificial intelligence turning against us and taking over uh, life. On Earth, as the Terminator films uh, so aptly put all those years ago, an asteroid hitting the Earth and destroying life on Earth, or even that super volcano going off and destroying life on Earth. The world has not lost its fear and fascination of, uh, of of its own end and of life ending here on Earth. But what does the Bible have to say about this? Actually, as you'd imagine, it has quite a lot to address in this area. And our passage today also touches on the end times as well, which is why I'm sort of uh, bringing this in. However, it's important important to say right at the beginning that theologian William Barclay says on our passage today that this passage is probably the most... Uh, 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 sorry, it's undoubtedly one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. The theologian Morris writes, this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in all of Paul's writings, which has given rise to many extravagant speculations. So to avoid that, I'm just going to start by quickly, if you like, outlining the four main Biblical views of how the end will come on earth. And uh, don't worry about the big words or remembering the big words that I try to pronounce because actually they're not too dissimilar, all of them, from each other. On the uh, This is a few bits here and there. Anyway, so first you get the pre-millennial view. Nothing to do with those born prior to the millennium or anything like that, but talking about a thousand-year reign of Christ. This teaches us that after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we enter the last days, as Peter said, when the Spirit is poured out on his church. The gospel gets preached in all the world, and then there's this Great tribulation, great time of trouble that Jesus promises and prophesies will happen all over the earth. Christ returns and he rules on earth for a thousand years in a kind of golden period before there's a final rebellion. And then there is the judgment and the eternal age to come. You know, this view was held by early church fathers, Arrhenius, Tertullian. It's a uh, f- uh, famous 19th century, Charles Spurgeon uh, spoke on that. Many people would like to quote from him. Currently, theologian Wayne Grudem is probably the most foremost uh, person uh, in our thinking who would hold this view uh, as well. Next, there is a millennialism, And uh, it's basically the same, except... It views the thousand-year period as symbolic of the church age, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Yes, there's troubles and there's tribulations throughout, but Jesus has bound the strong man Satan from ending the church and from stopping the gospel spread all over the earth. So the gospel is preached at the end of the world. There's a great tribulation, and then the eternal age comes in early church fathers like Polycarp, Clement, Augustine held this view, as did reformers Luther and Calvin, and then a more recent theologian, Hendrickson, would uh, hold this view as well. Others place the return of Christ after a thousand-year period. That is known as post-millennial. You thought we were post-millennials, but uh, uh, this, this is... What postmillennial means in terms of the biblical uh, uh, view of it? It was popular from the time of the Reformation, so from the 1600s up until the, second, uh, the first and second World War. Bible teachers like Charles Hodge, Matthew Henry, John Bunyan, social reformer like William Wilberforce held this view. And then, lastly, arising in the 19th century from the Plymouth Brethren is the dispensational. Pre-millennial view, which is basically very similar to the classic pre-millennial view, apart from it places a secret return of Christ either before or in the middle of the Great Tribulation, where he raptures the church, and uh, uh, and then there's a public viewing at the end of that time, where he comes, and then there's a thousand-year reign. This view was promoted by John Darby, the Plymouth Brethren, the Schofield Study Bible, which was very influential, and more recently by novelist Tim LaHaye. All of these views, by the way, are acceptable, if you like, Christian end times views. And there's various differences that some people may hold, but they're the main four, if you like. All involve the gospel going out to the nations as the key catalyst for triggering the great tribulation and the end events there. And uh, so that's what you need to bear in mind, church, because that's what we know for sure. If you ask me, as some people do, I'd push you walls to, towards the top two as being more uh, robust theologically and historically in line with what the church has held. But as I said, all four views are acceptable Uh, Christian views. I would recommend Hendrickson's book, uh, More Than Conquerors, John Hosier's book, uh, The End Times uh, on the Thinking Clearly series, or Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and the, the section on there, on The End Times. All of those will help your understanding on it. But whatever view you decide to take on this, our job as the Church of Jesus Christ is the same, And that is to live for Jesus, trusting him, despite what opposition we may face in our time, and to make sure that the gospel goes out to all the nations. And then, at that point, we'll find out which one of the four is right, won't we? So there you go. And that's basically Paul's encouragement in our passage today. As he, re- as he talks about the revealing of the man of lawlessness who is to come during that great tribulation and that time of rebellion. So let's, let's have a look at the passage, shall we? It should appear behind me, but if you've got your Bibles, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes Only he who restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception for those who are perishing because... They refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I'll, I'll leave it there. As I say, there's plenty in there. And there's, the thing about this passage, there's lots of things that we know and there's lots of things that we know don't know from this passage. So firstly, let's look at the things that we don't know. Because what we do with the things that we don't know as believers is very important. We're told in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, not to go beyond what is written. The apostle John at the end of his gospel deals with a rumour that was spread at his time that he's going to live forever. And John writes this again to warn us not to go beyond the words of scripture. He said, Jesus did not say to Peter that I would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You see, everything we need to know is in here, is in the Bible there's many things that we would like to know and want to know, but if we need to know it, God has included it in here. If I'd read on in that passage, you'd see in verse 15, it says about that there's the traditions that we are called to stand on and hold to. Well, these traditions, as Christians, are what's recorded in God's word, the scriptures. So we've got to be careful not to go beyond what is actually Written in there. There's many things we'd like to know, but our knowledge of uh, the history of that time or, uh, of, uh, or of what the Bible actually reveals to us is not there. It becomes a trust issue, actually. God wants us to trust him with the things that we know and to trust him with the things that we don't know. So the disciples in Acts 1, verse 6, are desperate to know times and seasons. And Jesus clearly says to them, it is not for you to know Times and seasons. Christchurch, be wary of teachers, particularly in this area, that give great details of times and seasons. Jesus says it's not for you to know. Now the Thessalonians thought Christ had returned, verses 1 to 2, and that they had missed it. However, Jesus makes clear in Matthew 24 that no one knows the time of Christ's return. However, he also makes clear that no one will miss it, because as lightning appears in the sky, he says, so will the return of Christ. Actually, even in this passage, if we understood the Greek, which I'll just explain one bit to you, I don't understand the Greek, but someone told me this. If you look at verse 8, where it says the word appearance there... Actually, in the Greek, that means a dramatic, visible appearing of Christ. So even there, Paul makes it clear that no one's going to miss it. Before that time, at some point, there's going to be a great apostasy, a great returning away from the faith, a great rebellion, where the man of lawlessness is revealed to the world, and in particular to the church. And it's particularly against God's ways, if you like, that he is rebelling and bringing in the time of great tribulation and trouble. But he hasn't been revealed yet. And no timeline is given by the Apostle Paul. The only clue that we've got is going back to Matthew 24, that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. Then the end can come. In fact, Jesus, in that passage in Acts, I quoted from, from Acts 1, verse 6. In verse 7 and 8, basically he goes on to say, look, don't worry about times and seasons. Your job is to be filled with the Spirit and to preach the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's our job, guys. Who is the man of lawlessness? It's another thing we don't know. Well, apart from associating him with the Antichrist, of the Apostle John's Writings, we don't know who he is. And uh, everyone who's tried to predict it has been proved wrong so far. Gordon Fee writes, in secular Greek, the word for rebellion was used to refer to a political or military revolt, a rebellion against a power or a deity. So Calvin notes on this passage as well that the, that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, he is not an enemy from outside but from within the household of faith. So the man of lawlessness will have some link to Christ and his church but will exalt himself above every other God. He will proclaim himself to be God as this passage makes clear and he'll come with all sorts of false signs and wonders as verse 9 and 10 make clear. In fact, again, Matthew, in Matthew 24, Jesus makes it clear that these signs and wonders will be so powerful, so convincing, that it even deceive God's elect, God's chosen, if that were possible. Like the thing being there, the emphasis being there, that's not possible because of God. Paul here uses the term temple of God in verse 4. And whilst it's not inconceivable that he meant the temple in Jerusalem, he may have mentioned that to them when he was with them, it would be inconsistent of Paul's use of the term temple to mean the church in his letters. Thus, whatever one you want to take or combine them together, we'll be wise with John Stott to accept that the picture of sitting in the temple and claiming to be God is used to express the opposition of evil to God from within within the church and leave it there. Not not trying to work out what what more it could mean. What is restraining the man of lawlessness, verse 6, or who is restraining it, verse 7? Suggestions of the state of... The angel Michael, amongst many other suggestions that people have, again, they're all just suggestions. Hendrickson writes, they knew we do not. Even the great uh, Augustine, who was considered, up until Calvin that is, considered the greatest mind uh, since the Apostle Paul in the 5th century, he said despite his best research, he did not know what it meant precisely. We don't need to know. Because if we did need to know, it would be clear in here. All we need to know is that ultimately something or someone God is using to uh, ensure that it doesn't happen before the right time. God is in charge, and we are called to trust him with the time that he has given us, to worship him, to stand firm on the truth despite whatever opposition comes our way and to proclaim the gospel. That's our job. That's how simple it is, my friends. Okay, moving on to the things that we do know that is clear from Scripture. Well, it's clear that the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, has not come yet. We can be clear about that. We don't need to be in any doubt. And our being gathered together with him as a church has not happened yet and won't happen until after the man of lawlessness is revealed. Otherwise, there's no point Paul writing this passage to them, pointing this out to them. The rise of the lawless one will come with all power and activity of Satan doing lots of false signs to deceive people. But even now... Lawlessness, Paul makes clear to us, is at work within the world. John, the Apostle John writes, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, coming, but even now many Antichrists have come. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are people and ideologies and religions and cults that arise out of the Christian world uh, uh, of Christianity to undermine and attack the church of Jesus Christ. God is not unable to stop this either. He's not sitting there worried about it as something's happened that took him by surprise. God actually sends this delusion. Verse 11 makes clear. In other words, he allows Satan a free hand to, to do this. It's not outside of his control, this passage is making it clear. Why does he do that? Well, it's because people refused to love the truth and be saved, verse 10 makes clear to us. They have heard the truth proclaimed to them. They have heard the gospel, but rather than accept it and accept their need for forgiveness before God, and turn from their wicked ways, looking to Jesus, who willingly died on that cross to save them, taking on himself God's judgment against the things that you and I have done that is wrong, that offends God. And then after, after dying, where he bears God's punishment for us, because God accepted that sacrifice, and because Jesus Himself had done nothing wrong, he rose again three days later, victorious over sin, death. And Satan, this being a sure sign, is resurrection as well, that all who put their faith in him will be saved, can be forgiven before God, they're no longer under God's judgment, and they too will rise again to be with Christ for all eternity. Rather than accept that gospel, people reject it. And if people reject it, the Bible's very clear, actually. God has every right to reject them and give them over to Satan. You see, there's windows of opportunity for salvation in individuals' lives. If he's extending his hand to you today, then you need to respond to it. See, if you keep refusing, the Bible makes clear that God gives you over to your sinful desire for a time. He may come again and challenge you by his spirit, but there's a time that he gives you over. And in the end times, when... we're right close to the end, that looks like giving people over to follow the man of lawlessness so they can follow their own heart's desires in taking pleasure in unrighteousness, verse 12. So if the Holy Spirit is challenging you afresh today to get right with God, then can I encourage you to respond, not to put it off, because otherwise God has every right to give you over to your sinful desire and to Satan. Surrendering to Christ, the Bible is clear, and verse 12 makes clear, is actually much more a moral issue than a truth issue or a belief issue. People want to do what they want to do. They want to be the God of their own life. That's the, de- that's the lie that the devil tempted Adam and Eve with right at the beginning. You can be like God. Who is this God to tell you what you can eat and what you can't eat, what you can do and what you can't do? People's beliefs are often shaped by their moral desires to justify how they want to live. And for a season, God allows people to go down that path. But ultimately, He is God. And he has given us life. He has given you your next breath. He is the judge of the world. And we will have to give an account to him for how we've lived. And what is clear is that even the man of lawlessness, if you like, the head of all rebellion against God, with all the satanic power that's behind him when he appears, actually has no power apart from what God allows him to have. And that only for a brief period of time. And then there's going to be no power struggle, no epic battle like you know, Captain America fighting Thanos or something like that. Jesus will defeat the man of lawlessness with his appearing and just his mouth. Verse 8 makes clear. So my friends... In closing, no matter what happens around the world or confusing situations we find ourselves in as Christians, this passage teaches us not to be shaken or alarmed, to trust God for he is totally sovereign and he is in control even over the times and seasons, even over the coming of the man of lawlessness. The Holy Spirit is working history towards God's in desire, desired end. So no you know, catastrophe is going to happen. There may be things that happen that we don't understand, but it's not going to take God by surprise. Our job as his church is to get on with the great commission and the great commandment that Jesus has given his church to fulfill right up until his return. Amen. Amen. Can I invite the band to come back up here? We're going, to sing, we're going to finish with a song declaring, basically, God's sovereignty, how he is crowned with many crowns. But if you're here today, and as I've been speaking, you know that actually you're not in that right place for God. And you know because the Spirit's been challenging you afresh this morning. Can I invite you just to pray this prayer along with me in your heart. God knows what you're thinking. So can you pray, I encourage you to pray this prayer of surrender to him, to get right with him, to receive his forgiveness and to know his grace and his, his love on your life. So just invite everyone to bow their heads in prayer. Just pray this along with me. Father, thank you that you love me. Thank you, you love me enough to send Jesus to die on the cross to save me. Please forgive me of all the things that I've done that are wrong, that offend you. And through the power of your spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, please help me to live the rest of my life for you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, please come and see me at the end. If you're watching online, please contact the office. We'd love to get in contact with you. We'd love to help you. There's a little tract here that can help you in your uh, Christian walk as well that we'd want to um, encourage you in. But can I encourage you, as we sing this song, to so whatever you're going through, know that God is in control, that he can be trusted, that he can be... He, he is, he is working in your life. And as you lean into him, he will grab hold of you. He will keep you safe. If you're here this morning, after as this song comes to a close and you're there and you know you're in a difficult situation and you just want someone to come and stand alongside you and pray with you, then please come forward to the front up here. We had those words earlier as well about healing and about you being in a relationship that you know you shouldn't be in. Again, please come forward, have someone come and pray with you that God will help you. If you need, if you need uh, any sort of healing, even if they weren't mentioned in those words, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you as well. And if you want fresh filling to be his witness today, then again, please come forward for filling as we, as we, uh, as we uh, um, draw this song to a close. Come forward, that would that, be great. But I'm just going to pray for us generally. Can I invite you to stand? And, uh, and then let's sing this song declaring the truth that Jesus is crowned with many crowns. He's in charge. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over history. Thank you that as Christians we don't need to fear, Lord God, what's going to happen because we know that you're in control. We know that you have all things, Lord God, is, all things are under your, your control and in your hands, Lord God, and including our lives. And Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you afresh. I pray by the power of your spirit that you would fill each one of us, Lord God, that you would help us to live for you, help us to get on with the job that you've given us to do, of sharing your good news, of worshipping you, and of, uh, of uh, proclaiming your gospel to those around us, Lord God. Be upon us, I pray, and fill us, Lord God, with your spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.